Well, have you figured out that Christmas, the Christmas season is in full swing? You know, last week we talked about, um, about Christmas crowds. I tried to give you a few things to hang on to as you went into the week, and I, I didn't even get home, I don't think, before I was confronted with the reality of the Christmas crowds and their selfless approach to traffic and parking places and all of those those kind of things. The Christmas season is upon us. And if it's not the Christmas crowds, then certainly you can tell that the season is upon us as you look around and look at the decorations. We went into the week at the Road Trammel household and it was Thanksgiving decor. And I woke up this morning and it was fully Christmas decor in our house. It's amazing what kind of difference a week can make. The Christmas season is on us, including parties. Yesterday, I had the chance to go to two different Christmas parties tied to organizations in our church. We had the deacon party. That was, that was a rather subdued, cultured kind of event, especially when you compare that to the adult Sunday school class party that I went to after that. Oh, my goodness. You know, when you start exchanging gifts and it's a white elephant kind of a thing, whoo, well, these Christian people can sure get ruthless I did, yeah, including me. I did get the one I wanted, so life was good before it was over with. The Christmas season is upon us. And um, I want to talk a little bit about gift giving today because that's a big part of Christmas. Why do we exchange gifts at Christmas time? I think it's important that we ask that question because. It's, uh, it's one of those things that is very much a part of the season, and what we're trying to do is talk about what's right with Christmas, and I'll come back to that in a few moments. But I, I think it's probably wise for us to pause for a few moments and ask the question, why do we do all of this gift-giving? And there would be some, I'm sure, who are sitting there already and thinking, well, clearly it's a, it's a Christmas season thing because we find in Scripture that the three wise guys, excuse me, the three wise men came. They're really called magi, if you will. And they came, you know, technically, if you know your history there, uh, Jesus wasn't a little baby in a manger necessarily when they came. It was a little time later. And as they came, they brought gifts. And so we say, well, we do the same thing. It's, It's a time of giving gifts. Others of us probably look at it and go, well, you know, I mean, it's part of the season. And the reason that we do it, it really doesn't matter because the reality is the Christmas season is for giving gifts, and so we do that. Others of us, some of you are just, as one pastor friend of mine used to say, you're better by nature than I am by grace. And so you say, well, it's just we, I just love giving to people, and so I give gifts. And then there are other people, like maybe some of us, well, at least one of us, who would say, yeah, why do we give gifts at Christmas time? Speaking of gifts at Christmas time, uh, I, I, first of all, I want to kind of get you trained on this idea. Whether you're for gift giving at Christmas or not, you better make peace with it because it's part of the Christmas season. But the other thing that I would say is um, it can easily get out of hand. Speaking of, you remember last week? When I asked the question, try to get you on the same page, I was about how, what kind of gift what should I give my barber? You remember that? Now, most of you slept through that comment last week. 
Some of you didn't. And I know that some of you didn't because I went to my barber this week and he said, let me tell you what you give your barber for Christmas. (laughs) In case you have a barber, I don't make mine work very hard. You may make yours work a lot harder, but uh, my barber said what you give a barber for Christmas is cash. It's always a good thing to just give cash. Christmas season and giving gifts can easily get out of hand if we're not careful. Let me put it to you this way. Just let's position yourself here. Do you begin your Christmas gift-giving mentality with the list of these are the people I have to give gifts for? Or do you start with a budget that says, here's how much I have to give with and I'll take it as far as I can go. You know, there's are several consumer reporting uh, sources that I've checked into on a number of different things, but especially on this one. Uh, they suggest that this year, uh, first of all, there are many people in American society who have not paid for last year's Christmas yet. And others, they say this year that the average individual... That means each one of us, not family units, but each one of us, the average individual will spend $1,007 tied to the Christmas season. Now, that would be, you know, for the groceries that you get and for whatever gifts you give and all of those kind of things. So uh, it's easy for us to see that this gets out of hand. And if you're still not convinced, let me take you to uh, some facts that I have here. I've been kind of watching this for a number of years now. There is an organization that tries to utilize this simple little tool. It's probably not specifically scientific, but they use this as a way of checking the consumer price index and the impact that it's making on families, the economy, and all that kind of stuff. And the way they do that is kind of a fun way at Christmas because they take each year the gifts of the 12 Days of Christmas song. You know the song I'm talking about? It's the list of gifts that nobody in their right mind would want. And they take that entire list and they cost it out by individual elements and then they compare the total cost from this year to last year to the previous year. And they've been doing this for a number of years. And uh, so in case you really love, well, how does the song go? On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. So if if you really want to show your true love, how true your love is, You better get, you ready for this? $39,094 to get all of those gifts. Now, the first one's fairly easy. Day one, a partridge in a pear tree, $220. I'm with my barber. Just give me cash. Day five, five golden rings. I don't know where they're shopping, but... Five golden rings, they say, would cost $750. Guys, if you're giving five golden rings to your wife, you better spend more than $750, I'm guessing. Day eight. Let's get to the personnel side of this. Day eight. Eight maids of milking. You're never going to guess how much they should get. $58. So if you're going to college to learn to be a milking maid... Change your major. Day 11 and day 12, we've got to get the musicians in on this. I don't know if this is a union scale or what it is, but day 11, 11 pipers piping, 
Day 12, 12 drummers drumming. Imagine how loud that is. $3,038. We could just, I could walk through the whole thing with you, but that's just an aside. The actual point of the whole thing is that if we're not careful, the spending that we do, the gift giving that we participate in during the Christmas season can easily get out of hand. So this year, let me suggest to you, as we talk about what's right with Christmas, it's easy for us. It's very easy for us. Matter of fact, we don't even have to try to do this. In our Christian sensibilities, often we look at the season and the secularization of it and the commercialization of Christmas, and it's very easy for us as Christians to get a little bit... um, maybe, or maybe just the word is just kind of turned off by the whole Christmas abuse. It's into that mode of thinking, and the one also that says that the trappings of Christmas are all wrong. I've had conversations recently here in El Paso with some individuals, Christian individuals, different organizations, different walks of life, uh, and many of them Uh, seem to come across with this point of reference that says that the trappings of Christmas are wrong for Christians. Uh, Shouldn't have Christmas trees. You shouldn't have Christmas decorations. All of those things that are the trappings of Christmas, we should just not participate in those that somehow those are wrong. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that that's where you are. You need to rethink that. I'm just saying for us as a church and you as an individual Christian, you better keep some balance in that because the reality is there are some things that are really right about Christmas. And we live in a society that doesn't necessarily buy into some of the basic premise points that we have. In other words, I'm saying this today, that the gift-giving part of Christmas as out of balance as that can get also is fertile ground for us to build bridges with people, especially people who do not accept Christ as we see him. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to look at some gift giving that occurs in scripture. I've told you when we started this that the various passages are not going to be the typical Christmas text that we go to. They're rather unorthodox for a Christmas sermon series. And so today we'll be in John chapter 1. Now, many of us would know that John is the one gospel that doesn't really give us uh, an account of the birth of Christ. John jumps off into some pretty deep philosophy and theology in chapter 1. So by the time we get to the end of chapter 1, he's already got our heads spinning. I preached through the gospel of John one time, and I skipped chapter 1 because I knew it would take me six months to get through it. But here in the latter part of chapter 1, we come in and John is giving us the account of Jesus as he calls some of his disciples. And in this particular case today, there are two gift givers that we're going to look at. That would be Philip and Jesus himself. And there's one person who's the recipient of the greatest gift, not only that Philip could give, but that you and I can give. And that is Jesus himself. And so the gift receiver here is Nathaniel. We begin reading in John chapter 1. In verse 44, in verse 43, by the way, Philip has been called. Jesus says to him, follow me. Verse 44, and now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, 
Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. As we begin this today, what I want to do is start off with this phrase that we have adopted, we as Christians, that is. And it's one of those that has, has in many ways, has become something of a war cry. In the secularization and the commercialization of Christmas that we see going on all around us, one of those go-to phrases that we put out, and we find it in some yard decorations, and we find it in various ways, it's this phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season. We can get fairly defensive about this, we Christians, but I think we should probably get real for a few moments And let's acknowledge the fact that there are those people who are out there outside the walls of our church. Jesus is not the reason for the season for them. Now, we can say and we should hold on to truth, and I intend for us to do that even as we walk our way through this, but we need to be honest enough and observant enough to recognize that the people that are in society at large who celebrate the Christmas season don't necessarily buy into the truth claims that we make about Jesus and who he is. If you don't really believe that, let me just encourage you to take a few moments during, uh, occasionally as we go through this season and look at some of the things going on around you. Let's start with a simple one. This evening after dark, just drive through your neighborhood a little bit and check out the various decorations that people have in their yards, on their homes, and even around town. You will find, if you do that, that you will find the occasional uh, nativity scene, a manger with figures, etc. But I suspect, at least in my neighborhood, I know this is true, that you will find more things like sleighs and elves and reindeers and Santa Clauses and all of, not, not multiple Santa Claus, just one. You'll find that all through your neighborhood. I, I would just posit this question to you. What is the significance of lights on a house and lights strung through your trees? Uh, what, what is the significance of that as it relates to Jesus Christ at Christmas? And we could go to the Advent process, and I, I understand that. But the truth of the matter is that when we look at the people in our area, it's not limited to our area, that many of them do not buy into a truth claim that says Jesus is the reason for the season doesn't mean we should abandon it. We certainly should not abandon that as a truth. We just need to read our area well. If that still doesn't do it for you, do a quick survey, watch a little TV and the Christmas specials that are going on, and count how many of the songs of Christmas have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. 
Please hear me carefully here. I'm not up here whining about that. The reality is, Jesus is, in fact, the reason for the Christmas season. I'm not going to debate that with anybody. But I also am not going to debate the fact that there are people out there who don't believe that. And so if we're not careful, we in the church take that truth and we retract from the world. We build up our arguments and we build up our counterattacks. We build up our walls and we hunker down behind them, yelling over the top, Jesus is the reason for the season, and nobody's listening. So we should be concerned, I think, that we address the reality of our times in a way that is both biblical and effective. And Philip proves to be a great model of that for us in this little passage. I say that because sometimes we complicate the message and the invitation that we give. But uh, I, I would say it this way as we begin this point. Um, the Christmas season and the emphasis on gift giving is a wonderful opportunity for us. And, the, and the, I guess I would say an on-ramp, if you will, into conversations with people about Jesus Christ, who he is, and why he is the greatest gift of all. Instead of arguing about other things, use the season to say, have you considered the greatest gift of all? Philip does that here. Look at verse 44 and 45 again. It says, now Philip was from Bethsaida. Now I should stop here and tell you that Bethsaida was a nowhere, nobody, no good, no count town in first century Jewish life. Or at least that's what a lot of historians say. Not much to it. Jesus put it on the map by doing a lot of the miracles and stuff that he did there and working in that area a lot. But Bethsaida is one of those that was just really kind of not really known for much. And so is Nazareth. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But that's where this happens. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. If we go back in chapter 1, we find that Andrew and Peter both called to be disciples here also. And we pick it up from there, verse 45. And Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's a simple statement. It is a simple statement that has with it an invitation. It's an invitation to Nathaniel that says, hey, you don't want to miss this guy. It is such a loaded statement as far as theological truth. He goes back to the law. He goes back to Moses himself, whom God had used to say there's going to be coming one who is the great deliverer. The prophets, he also references here. You go back into that part of Old Testament, what we would call Old Testament Jewish life, and Philip now bears down, drills down, and settles into that, and he says to his friend Nathaniel, you're not, I'm going to put this in the road travel translation for the day. He says, you're not going to believe who we found. That is an invitation that is about as simple as you can get. If I said to you, you're not going to believe how much gold we found in the basement of this church, would you want to see it? And if you said no, then you have more money than you probably need. Everybody wants to see a cache of gold, right? Philip says simply, you got to see this. 
you got to meet this guy. It's a simple invitation. I, 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 I pause here because I think so often in our attempt to, to be the evangelist that we're called to be, that we make it harder than it needs to be. Now, I, I used a term there that scares about half of us, I suspect, the term evangelist. We, we typically, in the way our churches are set up, Historically, at least, in my experience, we set up these hit squads. We don't call them that. We're much more cultured than that. But uh, we, we have a group of people typically in our churches who that we know love to share Jesus Christ with other people. And so often what we do with them is when we find somebody that needs, you know, really we, we probably should share Christ with them. Then we get a hold of one of the people on our spiritual hit squad and we say, hey, would you go see them? Now, I know this because I was trained in some evangelism, church-wide evangelism emphases things as I was going through seminary and otherwise, where, where we were told as young seminarians, identify these people, train these people, and then when you have Monday night visitation, whatever it is, you send them out to those people that are ready to be confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so in kind of in slang terms, we might say those are our spiritual hit squad people. The, the pro, there are problems with that. There's some things that are good about that, but there are some problems with that. One of them is that it takes the rest of us off the hook, or at least we think it does. We're going to send those people, but that means I don't have to do it. There's a good biblical term for that. It's called heresy. Because each of us are called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ, ambassadors for Christ, we find written in Scripture. Salt, light, Jesus uses those terms about us. Each of us, I've said it this way for 16 months, you have been strategically placed by God in a circle of people who desperately need life, only life that Jesus Christ can bring. You're the bridge into that group of people. And so we don't have to go to a, a hit squad. We just need to go to people and those people that are in your circle. That's what Philip does here. He connects in the terms of the, of the vision that we're working from as a church and moving towards trying to flesh it out in a lot of different ways, uh, that we are the bridges. We're the ones who are called individually to connect people with the love and the life of Jesus Christ. So the question that I have for you today is, who in your circle is Nathaniel? If you're Philip, who's Nathaniel? in your circle. And the, and the approach doesn't need to be complex. It just needs to be a conversation. One of the things that we do is we often push to close the deal. We, we go to someone and we want to, it's almost like an attorney arguing their case before a jury trying to get them to make the decision that he wants them. So he gives them the facts that support his cause. And he says, here's the facts. Now you, you should come up with this verdict, guilty or not guilty, whichever one he prefers. And sometimes our evangelism looks like that where we go to people and we just lay out the facts for them and, we, and then we're talking to close the deal. I think it's interesting here that what Philip does with Nathaniel is real simple. He makes a truth claim. We found Messiah. He didn't use that term, 
But that's exactly what he's saying with the things that he does say there. So maybe instead of arguing people into the kingdom, one of the things that we might do is to have a conversation with them at Christmas time when we're emphasizing giving gifts and talk about the greatest gift who ever was. Talk about who Jesus is because my experience with people out there, a lot of people have never been to church. A lot of people don't really know who Jesus really is. And they're working with a perception of Jesus that may not be right. So we can have those simple conversations based on who we are and what we know by experience and take them to Jesus. Philip is a great example for us, but now we turn our attention to Nathaniel because Nathaniel becomes another example of what we might face. Uh, if you decide to have those conversations, those simple conversations at Christmas about the greatest gift who ever has been given, be prepared to deal with skeptics. Do you notice what well, I've already emphasized a little bit what Philip said and who he says Jesus is, but notice what Nathaniel's response is. <laughs> Can anything good come from Nazareth? I suspect there was a bit of a snarl in his voice. There, there was some, some uh, village rivalry in those days between those two nothing villages. Um, let me, let me step out of that first century world into the 21st century world. And let me just say it this way. Now, in 1900, in none of your business, I graduated from Odessa High School. Okay? Now, when I, in my life here in El Paso for 16 months, when people say, where are you from? And I say, well, uh, I lived in Odessa. We kind of used to call Odessa home. Now we call El Paso home. But uh, we, we, my wife and I both graduated from Odessa High School. And people in El Paso go, you mean Permian? I said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Permian's the one that had the football team. Odessa High School is the one that actually graduated students out. <laughs> And if you went to Permian, God bless you and have mercy on you. It's been 40 years since I graduated from high school. And I still don't like Permian. My great nieces are cheerleaders for them and it's all I can do to even talk to them. No, I'm overplaying that a little bit. You know I'm overplaying that a little bit, but rivalries are like that, right? When we deal with rivalries, we tend to diminish the other person and sometimes even dismiss them. Not because of who they are, but because they had the unfortunate reality of having to go to Odessa Permian High School. Or in this case, Nathaniel says, Messiah from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Now, I know that I'm reading a little bit into that, but not, I'm not reading into the rivalry between those two little villages. Here's the point. Nathaniel was extremely skeptical to the claims that Philip brought. Nazareth? Really? Here's the really interesting thing to me about that. Philip doesn't try to convince him. I'm shocked at that, honestly, maybe because 
that's kind of been our mode. I, I was trained that way. When somebody rejects the message that you have about Jesus Christ, then you need to have a ready answer. You know, we call that apologetics. It's a good thing. I, I don't, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have apologetics. Well, you better stand on truth. If you don't have a reflected faith, if you haven't thought, thought through your faith and reason with it and let the Holy Spirit teach you things about what you say you believe, if you haven't done that, then you might be in trouble when you go to some people who don't know who Jesus is and start having a conversation because they're going to tell you what they've heard on the street. A ref, an unreflected faith tends to be a shallow faith, and so we need to be good thinkers in our Christianity. Having said that, I find it amazing that Philip does not try to argue Nathaniel into being a follower of Jesus. If you'll notice there, what he says is, come and see. <laughs> I love that. You see, evangel- we've made evangelism awfully hard and awfully intimidating. When you really get right down to it, being a bridge where you connect people with the life, the love of Jesus Christ, is a matter of saying, let me introduce you to the greatest gift ever given. And it comes out of your own experience. And it comes not from some argument that you had, not some set of facts somebody taught you, although you need to know how to have the conversation. We, we emphasize that in our church. I'm not unemphasizing it, de-emphasizing or disemphasizing it now. We should do all of those things, but when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, it's a conversation with somebody about Jesus Christ and how real he is and the life that he can give. And Philip says to Nathaniel, the skeptic, come see for yourself. (laughs) I love that. I'm about out of time. I should get finished, I suppose. So here's the last point. We need to let Jesus win them. We need to let Jesus be the one who closes the deal with them. You know, he's really good at that. If you're here today and you call on Jesus as your Savior, it's because he closed the deal with you. It's because he brought you to a point through the Holy Spirit, brought you to a point where you recognize your need for him and the sufficiency that he is for that need. I think it's important that we find this, again, last part of verse 46, Philip just says, come and see. But here's here's an interesting part of the little passage here. You notice that Nathanael goes, verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. In other words, here's a real deal guy, a real deal Israelite. And that causes Nathanael, the skeptic, to go deeper into his skepticism. How do you know me? I I really suspect that this was not a friendly kind of a question to him. How do you know me? In other words, you don't know me. And then Jesus does something. And Before I go to what Jesus does, I want you to notice the effect that it had on Nathaniel. Because he says, how do you know me? And Jesus answers him. And then verse 49, all of a sudden Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, 
That's one title. You're the son of God. That's a second title. You're the king of Israel. That's a third title. In other words, what Nathaniel does between one verse and then his response right in the middle is Jesus, and that Jesus response turns the tables for Nathaniel. And now he's the one calling Jesus Messiah. What in the world could Jesus have said to him that would turn the table like that? And the answer is, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Scholars are all over the map on this. It really kind of comes down into two different camps. Nobody really knows, so you can take your pick. One camp of scholarship says that Jesus is just making a geographical reference. I saw you sitting under the fig tree, that fig tree to be exact. But other scholars, and I tend to believe on this one because there's, there's such a profound change in Nathaniel here. Other scholars point to the fig tree, and you can find these, some references over in the Old Testament, but uh, point to the fig tree as a symbol. It came to be a symbol for home for the Israelites in the Old Testament. It was a place where they found, it just represented, this is where I am, this is where my home is. And because of that, over a period of time, it began to symbolize a place for them where they would go practically uh, and study and pray and meditate a little bit. And so many scholars believe that what Jesus is pointing to here is that Nathaniel, at this point in his life, is going through some kind of a struggle, and he goes out to a literal fig tree, sits out underneath it, where he does business with God over an issue that only he and God knew. And when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel had to know there's something special about Jesus because he gets it about me. Now, wherever the reality is, again, you can take your pick. But what we do know is that with Jesus' response, Nathaniel moves from being a skeptic to being a disciple. Let's not forget that in our conversations, in our evangelism, in our witnessing with people at Christmas time. Jesus still has the ability to speak and cut to the center of an issue of any person because he is in fact God. He is the Son of God in the flesh. And if that's not enough, as I close... I love verses 51 and 52 because now Nathaniel, the disciple, steps into the classroom with Jesus, the teacher. Because Jesus says, so I'm going to put this in road trammel ease for you, okay? Jesus essentially says to him, so let me get this straight. You believe in me because I said I saw you under the victory. And then Jesus says, I'm going to show you stuff that are going to blow your mind. Jesus still does that. I'm here today because because Jesus stepped into my skepticism and he pulled me out and he said, Let me blow your mind. 
you'd have known me when I was in high school, you'd have never dreamed that I would be doing this today. Who's the Nathaniel in your circle? What are you giving them for Christmas? Let's pray. And as we go to prayer, we step into an invitation time. Let me tell you what the invitation is. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus personally, like I've been talking about, why not? The offer is before you. He offers to give you life. He is, in fact, the reason for the season. That's why all of this matters is because it's when Jesus stepped into a hopeless situation for us, and he is the gift of life. If you don't know him personally, I want to invite you today to come and see. We'll help you with what that means and how you appropriate that into your own life. But it starts with a move towards him. Come and see. Many of us know Jesus as our Savior, but we've let too many Nathaniels pass out of our circles. Maybe this Christmas season is a good time for us to step back into the mode of inviting people to have conversations that lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Will you commit yourself to that? If you don't know Christ today, the invitation is for you. You come. If you know him, the invitation is tell somebody. But for all of us, we come, Father, before you, asking for your grace and your mercy. Take us to that place in our relationship with you where we are broken for other people that you would give us a compelling need to have conversations that lead people that connect people to the love and the life that only you can give help us to be good bridge builders this Christmas in Jesus name amen let's stand and sing you